Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I am the host of Independent Thought. My name is Desmond Price. No matter where you are in the world, I want to thank you for giving me a few minutes of your day to hear my thoughts. As always, we have a great show for you today. Now here are our topics. Today, we have a very special guest coming in to talk with us. We'll be talking about the ongoing conflict in Iran, as well as America's foreign policy decision-making. And finally, a brief touch on the the 2020 Democratic field and the candidates that most inspire my guest. At the very end of our episode, I will be answering the question that I left us with at the end of episode two. So stay tuned to hear my answer from last episode. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for listening to Independent Thought. I have a special guest with us here today by the name of Christopher Tracy. Chris, how are you doing today? Doing good, D. How about yourself? Not too bad. Tonight, we are talking about the ongoing conflict with Iran. I've done a couple episodes previously on this, but I thought I'd bring somebody else new in here to talk about this situation. Chris comes with a different perspective on the issue, and I just kind of want to pick his thoughts a little bit about this issue. You know, with the whole Iran deal going on right now, with the way Trump's handling it, with the way people are criticizing him about it, what do you think of the whole conflict so far? What do you think should have been done differently? Well, from the start, the biggest thing is, you know, rip, Trump ripping apart the uh, the nuclear deal that Iran, that uh, President Obama got us into, that we agreed to stop trying to pursue a nuclear program. But, you know, Trump, and this has been supported by a lot of people, you know, who are conservative. They supported what, they supported uh, the aims that, you know, stopped the hostility between the two nations for a little bit. And then Trump gets into office, you know, trying to be the strong man trying to, you know, outshine Obama, rips up the nuclear deal. Oh, worst deal ever. And now it's brought us back to a point of hostility, which culminated in, you know, the strike on the general. And it just turns out from everything that I've read that this general, yeah, he'd been plotting killing Americans. So it's not like there wasn't a reason to kill him. But the reason he was doing that, he was helping the Iraqis kill Americans because, you know, we've been occupying that country illegally and bombing it. For, you know, going on 20 years now. And he just happened to be aiding their effort as somebody who had more resources than they do, as Iran is a lot more economically stable than Iraq is. But, um, yeah. So it just seems like this is a problem that it's just, it's a never-ending cycle. There's going to be another Soleimani. There's going to be somebody else helping to kill Americans in Iraq or just in the Middle East, period, as long as we're there. Right. So you're just, you're not really saying that, like, Soleimani shouldn't have been taken out, but rather. Well, well, yeah, 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 exactly, D. Like, I mean, as far as me, I don't want to cast that judgment on them. But, I mean, anybody who, like, you know, if you're going to be messing with the United States, you know that that comes with the territory, is that they'll kill you. Right. So what do you think should have been done differently? Had, you know, like, you know, what was the appropriate measure that you think should have been leveled? Well, if Soleimani was really that bad, was really that much of a threat in the region, I mean, they should have, you know, 
tried to capture him at least. And if he's like, you know, killing Americans, you can capture him, bring him in. And you ask him, you know, how could we get you to stop doing that? Of course, I, th- I believe I know the answer, but, you know, maybe I don't. But I think that that would probably be a better way of going about it or just, you know, getting out of the region, period, so that nobody's in a position to kill U.S. troops. Okay. Now, you know, Trump levels the the accusation that Soleimani was planning imminent attacks on the U.S. Now, do you think that that's justification for taking him out if they believe that he was going to attack a base or, a, you know, a military installation of some sort? Um, well, I mean, yes and no. I mean, like, I don't really think they should have moved to do it because, you know, I mean, it was an act of war. You kill the military personnel of a different country, that's an act of war. But, um, I mean, I think, I think we would have done just fine with heightening security at our bases. I mean, if they took him seriously enough to kill him, they could have taken him seriously enough to just heighten security at our bases to making sure that, you know, any attack that does occur is either, you know, ineffective or, you know, you can capture the people. You can notice that they're trying to do something and you capture them. But as far as, uh, you know, and plus, not to mention, the strike also killed civilians. They took out a whole bunch of people just to get one guy. And that's a policy that backfires on you. And that's a, that policy, you know, with the drone warfare in the Middle East has got us in a lot of trouble. It produced Soleimani in the first place. Right. Now, for those who don't know, Soleimani was supposed to be one of the highest, if not the highest ranking, like, member, like, I guess you would say, for the Iranian military. He'd be sort of like, kind of like an equivalent of be someone who sits on our Joint Chiefs of Staff. Is that correct? <laughs> It seems that way, yeah. I, don't, I haven't read everything about him, but I know he's a high-ranking officer with the Iranian military. Right. So, so yeah, technically, yeah, it would be like taking out somebody who's in somebody who sits at the Pentagon. Right. So definitely something that if had been done to us, we would have retaliated with war. Undoubtedly. Right. So we go ahead and we do this act. I have said on a previous episode that I believe that it was just unnecessary given the situation and that we could have probably accomplished our goals of really government by just adding more sanctions. And since I've said that, you know, Steve Mnuchin and Secretary Pompeo have come out saying that President Trump has ordered additional sanctions. Now, as far as these sanctions are concerned, do you feel like they should have just did that from the beginning, or do you feel like even that is too much of an escalation? Well, I mean, and it's been said before by other people that sanctions are an act of war. So, I mean, it really seems like if those were your two options, I mean, the situation is just going to escalate no matter what. Right. So the question then becomes, how big of a threat really is Iran? Should we be giving them the kind of attention that we are right now? Or is the U.S. just creating another enemy to fight? You know, because that accusation has been leveled against the U.S. before, that we just create boogeymen for no reason. Or is this different? Is Iran really the big bad that we've been making them out to be for as long as we've been making them out to be it? Some would say that Iran has actually been the puppet master for all of the conflict on in the Middle East for the last decades, right? How do you see it? Chris, 
Chris, are you still with us? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, you were uh, kind of uh, breaking up a little bit. Oh, I was saying, how do you see it? Well, I don't know. Iran is really complex, and I don't know that we get the full story of the media, but um, I know, D, you've read just like I have. I mean, our issues with Iran did not just recently start. And as a matter of fact, it didn't even start, you know, back in 2002 when George W. Bush announced the axis of evil of Iran, Iraq, and North Korea. It goes way back to 1953 when the democratically elected Mohammed Mosaddegh of Iran denied British Petroleum a monopoly on the country's oil. And the CIA, in conjunction with British intelligence, worked to overthrow him, and they did successfully. And then they installed the Shah, who led a very repressive regime, but he gave us our oil. So, and then that goes to, uh, you know, they took, they took U.S. hostages once the first Ayatollah took over. And it's just, it's just been a continual back and forth with that nation. And, um, you know, as far as what I know about their capabilities, they have enough capability to defend themselves from us and, you know, like in Israel. But as far as, you know, being able to go out and attack other people, they don't really have, you know, that kind of capability, especially to go out and attack us or any other Western power. But if something comes to them, they are, from what I understand, they are very, very prepared to handle it. They're, I mean, they have, they, have, they have the sophisticated modern weaponry, and so they could stand up to us for a little bit. We'd eventually get the better of a kind of longer-term exchange, but I think people would be very shocked by how many lives that they would take in the first place. Right, right. And, you know, and another thing with messing with Iran is the fact that Russia and, I believe, China to a degree both get their oil from there. So us messing with them puts us in direct conflict with them, and our relationships with those two nations are already not very good in the first place. Right, which kind of leads us to our next segment here. So stick with us through this break, and we'll be right back to talk some more foreign policy with our guest, Christopher Tracy. Hey, Indie Thought listeners. Has this past year helped you rediscover your creative and crafty side? Well, then you're going to love our sponsor for today's episode, Bathing Beauties Beads is a full-service bead shop in the heart of downtown Missoula. Whether it's seed beads, semi-precious stones, vintage beads, or just materials to make a project, they have something for every person and every price range. Not from Missoula? Don't worry. They have an extensive online store and they will ship directly to you. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, they'll welcome you and help you make your next project a reality. You can find them online at Bathing Beauties Beads on Instagram and Facebook or at bathingbeautiesbeads.com. And don't forget to use offer code INDEPENDENTTHOUGHT at checkout to save 15% on your order. Betty's Divine is a locally owned boutique on the magnificent hip strip in downtown Missoula, Montana that has been a fixture in the Mountain West since 2005. We have a fondness for vintage-inspired clothing, shoes, and accessories for humans, as well as the real deal found in our vintage department, Divine Trash. Betty's Divine presents a snapshot of Northwest styles with an emphasis on street, skate, surf, and rock and roll culture, as well as Americana classics. Alongside a radical selection of clothing, Betty's Divine offers a damn fine array of shoes, jewelry, records, and accessories to satisfy any taste, whatever your age or vibe. You can count on us to prioritize financial, social, and environmental responsibility without sacrificing the look. Visitors enjoy a lovely atmosphere, dreamy tunes, and the best customer service in the West. And you can shop us online at Betty'sDivine.com. 
All right, everyone. Welcome back from break. We are back again with our guest, Christopher Tracy. Chris, we have a lot of stuff going on in the world right now. You know, we just talked about Iran, but we also need to talk about as well as like what's going on here at home. So the Democratic primaries are going on right now. And I know that you as well as I have, you know, watched mostly all of these debates, if not all of them. And I kind of just want to get your sense on, you know, exactly who it is that you are looking towards right now, as far as who you think might be the eventual nominee that comes out of this bunch. Oh, man, it's tough to tell who uh, might be the eventual nominee. You know, as much as I hate saying it, I got to believe it's probably going to be Joe Biden. I d- and why do you feel that way? Because I don't think he should have been in it this long. I mean... Clearly, in every debate that I've watched, D, and I know that you've watched, is he's been the lowest performing candidate in every single one of them, and yet they keep throwing it up in it, and yet he won't drip, he won't get out of the race. Right. Well, he honestly has no reason to at this point. All the traditional metrics that you would say would tell you how well he's doing um, right now are showing that he is leading in all the polls. He's making plenty of money. Well, he's not leading in the amount of money that's being donated to him. He still has a good number, but he's leading in every poll. And in fact, he's also, when they do polls where they say, you know, would you beat Trump? He leads all those polls as well. So, I mean, there's no real reason for him to back out at this point from a statistical standpoint. Man, that's crazy. That's uh, stuff that I didn't know. But it seems like every debate that I watch him in, I mean, there's nothing impressive about him. And he sounds like more of the same. And definitely to other people that I talk to, they echo those sentiments. Right. The question, I guess, comes down to is who is watching these debates? It would seem as though the viewership has gone down tremendously every single debate. I think they said that somewhere in the neighborhood of like, oh, like close to 25 million people watched the first debate in June. And in the recent debate before today, the one that happened in December, that debate only pulled in about 6 million people who watched it. So it seems as though that is a pretty significant drop off. Yeah, I wonder if that I wonder if people have seen enough to where they've already decided on who they're going to vote for. I think there's a certain type of person who watches these debates like every single time and I think there's certain people who like just check in once and then they they know enough what they need to know. You know, and I also saw a poll recently that came out that said that, you know, 50% of Iowans still can be persuaded to vote for someone else, that they weren't entirely locked into their pick. I like that, though. I don't think people should be entirely locked into anybody, and they should like be questioning their candidates all the time. Yeah, I, um, I was pretty interested in seeing that the fact that of the people who, you know, were they were asking them like specifically like, you know, if you say that you're, you know, leaning towards, you know, candidate X, how much are you committed to definitely voting for them? And the person at the highest one was, I think, over 50 percent of Bernie supporters said that they were definitely voting for him. And I think the lowest was Pete Buttigieg, who I think it was roughly around like 13 percent of the people who were interested in that they were definitely voted for him. Hmm. I'm not really sure what lane Pete Buttigieg thinks that he might have, but I'm interested to kind of see how this all shakes out now. You know what? I, uh, 
Yeah, I don't know either. But you know what? I feel like the Democratic nominees get a boost because Trump is so hated. And there's that mindset that says vote blue no matter who. And I know you've heard it because I hear it all the time. I do hear it all the time. And I I wonder just how differently these things are approached depending on where you're at in the country. You know, because you have like very liberal places like in, you know, California and, you know, Oregon, Washington, the whole West Coast. Then you have, you know, blue places that are more moderate, kind of like, you know, places in Pennsylvania or Virginia or maybe in even in places like Georgia, Colorado, Michigan. Um, Yes, Colorado as well. So I, I feel like the Democratic voter is a different type of person depending on where they're at if they're a democratic voter who lives in an all blue state or if they're a democratic voter who lives in a more purple state because i feel like the more purple state voters they might have different feelings about who they're going to vote for than someone who lives in a a liberal hub like the west coast yeah definitely now uh you you currently reside in the west coast don't you i do and you also lived in a more purple area at some point in your life? I definitely did. What is the main differences that you see from being in two different areas like that? Uh, I mean, it's clear. I mean, there's a lot less room for, like, civil debate and dissenting views. People are quick to shut you down if you don't completely line up with what they're saying 100%. And if, you know, you question and try and, you know, poke holes in their views they're not the mo- they're not very welcoming to that they're not very welcoming to being questioned whereas other places there was a little bit more room for civil debate and questioning of each other's ideas whereas out here that kind of stuff can be taken as a threat and people are quick to shut you down and they're not open to you know maybe listening to another perspective and you know seeing how somebody arrived at a certain decision that they don't agree with right right so that's the that's one of the big differences that i can see for myself it's it's a lot more you know cutthroat and diehard. A lot of hardliners. Now, what did you see when you lived in the more purple area? You know, in the more purple area, there was you know more respectful back and forth, and you know it wasn't so tense that uh somebody disagreed because they were used to dealing with people that disagree with them. And in the more blue area, they're not used to people disagreeing with them. And matter of fact, they've expanded on that. I mean they really want you to agree with them 100%. If you don't, they think there's something wrong with you and they'll try, they want to try and fix you. And it's just, it's crazy. Wow. You know, I, uh, I personally haven't spent too much time in those areas. So I, uh, I'm not familiar with being in that kind of an environment, but it does sound like a very interesting place to be. Oh, definitely. But you know, the one thing that I keep coming back to when I'm trying to think about, like, you know, what's going to happen here in this election is trying to think, think about exactly, like, how is the country going to vote? And I feel as though it's hard to predict how these more purple areas are going to react, because I know how the liberal hubs are going to react. They're going to vote essentially what you said, vote blue no matter who. But in these more, like, moderate angles, I feel like some people who would vote Democrat could actually still be convinced to vote for Trump. I believe so too. What do you? What kind of appeal do you think Trump has to people who do swing back and forth between voting like blue and red? I don't know. I mean, just people really hate the identity politics. 
Okay. And what do you expand on that a little bit? I mean, they just, they just get tired of, you know, the, the, the identity politics and the political correctness. I think the political correctness is probably the biggest thing that would draw people to him because people are just tired of that, tired of having to walk on eggshells, tired of always being worried about offending somebody. Right. So do you think that the political like correctness movement has gone too far? You know, in a lot of ways, yes. Especially like in the Trump era, it's especially dangerous right now because it's like if it gets to a point to where we're not allowed to say mean things and disagree with each other, then it's going to get to a point to where we're not allowed to say mean things and disagree with the government. And that's my biggest concern right now. You think that people are trying to really hinder freedom of speech? I don't think they're trying to, but the results of their actions, I mean, that's, I believe, where it leads to. Right, right. Well, I think that that is a definite talking point that Trump uses in his rallies. Have you ever watched him speak at a rally before? Uh, bits and pieces. I can't watch him for too long. No? Just a little bit too much for you? Yeah, I mean, eventually, you know, just... I don't. Know, I, I I don't really have a really good view of him. My view of him is very very biased. I just. I mean. I just think he's very disingenuous. I. I mean. I've read up on him. I've read up on him. I know his track record, and he just shows as a person who will say whatever he needs to say in the moment to get whatever it is he needs at that time. He's a very chameleon. Exactly. He's very moment to moment. I don't believe he believes in long term commitment and loyalty. I don't believe those are concepts that he lives by. All right. And so like when he's there so, and he's like talking about, you know, stuff that I know is deeply personal to his constituency, I just can't watch him talk on that stuff and believe that he's sincere. I just cut it off. I'm just like, man, this dude is obviously acting. No, I can understand that completely. Now, what do you think Trump has done that's been the most like impactful, either in a negative or a positive way since he's been in office? Well, negative is he has strengthened both parties for sure he has strengthened all the major media outlets and that's his big negative and um hmm well positive he said some good things about you know the the folly of our foreign policy but again negative he hasn't really done anything to change it no just illustrating the fact that you know i think one of the things you have touched on in conversations with me in the past about the fact that like the U S is consistently, you know, essentially giving protection to other countries by having our bases and our military there. And they never chip in any money towards us. And Trump has highlighted that fact before that they never actually pay for any of the military like work that we do in those countries. Exactly. They take it even further. They slash their defense budgets and, you know, put more money into investing into their economics and they go out and they steal our markets. Right. So it's actually a net negative to be in these countries is what you're trying to say, because they're not spending money on defense because they know that will defend them. And then they're using the money to reinvest into their their economy, which then hurts our economy. Exactly. Look at our relationship with Japan, especially in the 80s. They had a uh, protectionist policies that uh, made them like one of the top econo- top economies in the world. They were probably our biggest competitor in the 80s. And they did that behind protectionist policies. Meanwhile, if we tried to sell our stuff over there, it was the hardest thing in the world you can do. And I actually got that from listening to a Trump interview from the 80s about Japan. Really? 
Yep. They so could, they could come here, they could sell their cars, TVs, VCRs, and it was the easiest thing for them. But if we tried to sell anything over there, set up a company over there, it was damn near impossible. So Trump really, I feel like, riled a lot of people around this idea of America first. He kept just he kept saying it over and over and over again. Now, his idea of this whole America first policy kind of just like reversing all of these things that, you know, you're talking about right now. This idea that, that these countries are essentially like taking advantage of us in these trade agreements, in these defense agreements. Do you think there's some truth to that? There is. There definitely is. Now, what do you think the best way of going about getting around these issues currently is? Do you think that Trump's taking the right approach with these tariffs with China, for instance? Or do you think there's a better way to handle this? Oh, you know what? I really can't say that I think, uh, you know, tariffs and stuff like that is, you know, trade wars lead to, you know, it can, you know currency wars lead to trade wars, which lead to real wars. That's the pattern that goes. But I don't know of any other way to, you know, deal with China and its growing economic might. Yes, China is definitely a topic that we will have to address another day because I can fill up an entire episode. Now, yeah. on, on the Democratic side, from the people who are running right now, because we spent some time talking about Trump, which one of these candidates... You know, because you, earlier you said that you thought Biden might be the person who comes out of this. But which one of these candidates do you see yourself like if you were to vote for one of them, who would you be most likely to vote for and why? Well, it'd probably be Andrew Yang. And because I feel like he's the one with the best solutions. I'm not saying that, like, I believe that they're all great and all going to work. I don't believe there's a single candidate that's got a plan like that. But he's the one with the best solutions. And he's the one who I believe, you know, really covers the root of a lot of these problems. His uh, stuff and the things that he says go above, you know, our simple left-right politics. Right. Now, this left-right divide that you talk about, do you think that that is contributing to our country being in, this, in a place right now where we just feel like we can't get anything done? Oh, exactly, man. That's exactly what's the, resp- the, the uh, that's the reason why we have it. It's called gridlock. And that's exactly the reason why we have it is because nobody wants to do the right thing for the country. Everybody's trying to do the right thing for their party and get their own personal victory. Right, everybody's, right. Just, everybody's motivated just by sticking it to the other side. They're not motivated by advancing the country. They're just motivated by sticking it to the other side. Yeah, I think you see some evidence of that in the fact that Congress can never get anything done. You know, it doesn't matter if it's you know, Nancy Pelosi as Speaker of the House or Paul Ryan as Speaker of the House or Harry Reid as the Senate Majority Leader or Mitch McConnell as Senate Majority Leader. We are seeing a continuation of the same thing, no matter who's in charge, which is one side blames the other side and the whole country gets to sit here and just suffer because, you know, 535 people in Washington, D.C. decided that they just don't feel like working together. You summed it up so beautifully, and actually, the way you summed it up, I'm just like even more disgusted at that crap. Yes, it, it is an ongoing issue, and definitely one that I feel like will be the next topic of our next conversation. But on that note, we're going to have to close off our conversation today with our guest, Christopher Tracy. Thank you so much for coming in. Ain't no problem. Anytime, D. Thank you so much.
And when we come back from our final break, I will be giving you my thoughts from our last episode. For our final segment today, I will be addressing the topic that we were briefly touching on with the last episode. So I came and I said that I did not believe that strictly voting against Trump would be enough to get the Democratic candidate like Joe Biden elected. The question is about inspiration and what's going to get people to go out and vote other than just their hatred of Trump. Now, I've seen people go and vote for George W. Bush and then vote for Obama and then vote for Trump. Now, what would cause someone to do that? Well, let's look into the more recent history. When Obama came out in 2007, 2008, he kept talking about change, about how the country was going to change and how his whole campaign was centered on the idea of change. And then in 2016, President Trump talked about draining the swamp and about how he wanted to make America great again. Now, people in the media can't seem to figure out how someone could vote for Obama and for Trump. They seem completely polar opposites in every way, shape, and form. But I believe the answer to this question is not as complicated as we make it out to be. The reason why people would vote for Obama and for Trump is because those were two different people who both said that they were going to change the way the country was currently being run. And that is what people are looking for. Now, someone like Joe Biden is coming onto the scene and he's telling everyone that he's going to return things to normal, that things are just going to go back to the way they were. But what we've seen over these last couple elections is that people don't want to go back. They want to go forward with something new and something fresh. It's not, a, it's not really that wild to understand that when you see that Congress as an overall figure has an approval rating of somewhere between 10 to 15%. People do not like Washington, D.C. They don't like what it stands for, and they don't like the absolute gridlock that it currently is in. People don't vote because they feel like their votes don't matter because nothing ever changes in this country. And so it makes people, you know, just completely just disillusioned and just disinterested. They just don't want anything to do with the country when nothing ever changes that helps them in any way, shape, or form. So if we're going to get people involved in this political process, if we're going to get people to actually care enough to vote or to vote against Trump, you have to give them a vision of what it is that you want to push America to. Now, I'm not trying to sit here and tell you that Joe Biden is not a better president or wouldn't be a better president than Donald Trump. I'm not saying that at all. He probably would be. But that's not the point here. The point is, how are you going to get people to vote for him? And I just don't believe that the message that you can run on in this election is let's go back to the way things were. Because nobody wants to go back. Like, yet we might want Trump out of office, And maybe some people do, maybe some people don't, but for those of them who do, 
I think they don't want to just get Trump out of office and go back to the way that things were. They want to get Trump out of office and go towards something better than how things were. Because if all you're selling is just the past, then Donald Trump will be your president until 2024. And for some people, that's okay. But for others, not so much. Where do you fall on this? What are your thoughts? Reach out to me on Twitter at IndieThought and tell me how you feel about this subject. All right, everyone. That is our show for today. I want to thank you all for checking out Indie Thought. Independent Thought is brought to you by your host, Desmond Price. You can follow us on Twitter at Independent Thought or at Indie, I-N-D-E, Thought. So, again, thank you all for coming and hanging out with me. For those of you who found me on iTunes or on Spotify, please go ahead and subscribe to us. Give us a five-star rating. If you give us a four-star rating, I'm inclined to think you're a hater. So don't hate. Thank you so much. And I hope to see you all next time.